Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Fresh Frozen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. I hope all is well. Now, before we get started today, I have been critical of the state of Pennsylvania in past episodes, especially considering the roads, but I've got to give them credit where credit is due, and I would like to tip my cap to the state of Pennsylvania. A recent report came out from a company called Budget Direct. It's an insurance company. I'm not familiar with them, but they compiled a report of the most expensive toll roads and the 360 miles of the Pennsylvania Turnpike took the top spot for the most expensive toll road in the world. Now, part of that is that 360 miles is a, excuse me, a long distance for a toll road. But to drive the 360 miles of the Pennsylvania Turnpike will cost you $112.91. The next closest competitor was the Grossglockner High Alpine Road in Australia. To drive the length of that road would cost you $45.43. In the U.S., the closest competitor was the New York State Thruway. And if you drove the length of the Thruway, it would cost you $28.05. So not only did Pennsylvania take the top spot, they ran away with the competition. And it wasn't even as close as what this report makes it sound. Pennsylvania just increased the tolls on the turnpike. Now, the only stretch of the Pennsylvania Turnpike that I'm ever on is me and my family will drive to Allentown on occasion. I think the stretch of the Turnpike that we drive on is about 40 miles. And up until recently, the round trip was $11.60. The increase the last time we went, round trip was $18. So the Turnpike Administration did not only raise the price of their tolls, they increased it 50%, which by my math, that $112 to drive the length of the turnpike would now be closer to $170. So good job, Pennsylvania. Keep up the good work. Uh, We're all rooting for you. Uh, Yes, that's sarcasm. Okay. I have been having discussions with my daughter recently. Uh, She watches the news. She sees the protests. She does not understand why people are pushing toward communism, uh, particularly people her age that seem to want to move to a communist system. And I'm proud that she can see through the the foolishness of communism. Most people her age do not. Uh, it sounds like a fantastic idea. You know, we'll all work together. We'll all get the same amount. But I've been asking her questions about what she's been learning about in school. One of the things that she asked me was, you know, when I was in school, when I was her age, how did we feel about communism? And just discussing with her in history and her civics classes, she had learned a little tiny bit about the Soviet Union and the Cold War. Um, Her knowledge of Fidel Castro in Cuba extends to she is aware that there is an island in the Caribbean that is called Cuba. Uh, She had not heard any of the story of Fidel Castro. Uh, She did not know that uh, Cuba was communist and how oppressive it was. She was kind of shocked when I told her about all the people that tried to escape from Cuba to Florida. But the biggest surprise was when I found out that she had never heard of East Berlin, East Germany. And when we were discussing how my generation felt about communism, one of the things I brought up is that we had this pretty much just perfect side-by-side comparison of 
a capitalist society and a communist society. And for those of you that may not be aware, the German Democratic Republic was a member of the Eastern Bloc, uh, which basically meant that they were part of Russia, basically. And it was formed in 1949, and it lasted until 1990. Now, when at the end of World War II, the U.S. and Russian forces were pushing into Germany from two different directions. Basically, what happened is, is when Germany was defeated, Russian troops controlled about half of Germany and Allied troops controlled the other half. Part of the post-war negotiations was that they were going to allow the Allies to con- keep control of their half of Germany, and they were going to let the Russians keep control of theirs. Uh, Berlin actually sat 100% inside of the East German borders, but part of the agreement was that half of Berlin would be considered part of West Germany. So you had this little island of democratic capitalism in the middle of Russian-style communism. For about the first 10 years, East Berlin and West Berlin were just sort of a city together. They were controlled by different governments, but they weren't really segregated all that much. The number of people leaving East Germany and going to West Germany and claiming refugee status alarmed the East German government enough that in 1961, and they did this overnight, what I read on this said that it was these barriers and the barbed wire were strung up over a two-night period, but basically the government sent construction workers in um, under the cover of darkness, and they put up temporary barriers and they strung barbed wire all the way across the border between East and West Berlin. Now, as I said, those were temporary measures. Uh, They were actually constructing what became known as the Berlin Wall. That construction took quite a bit. I mean, obviously you're building a wall across a city, but the Berlin Wall was completed in 1969. And it was not just a simple wall. They were actually two walls with a large space in between. And the large space that ran between these two walls was called the Death Strip. They had barbed wire uh, that was patrolled by trained guard dogs. They also had areas with landmines. And if you need proof of If your city is failing or not, when you have to go to that extreme to keep people from leaving your city, it should be a sign that there are things going wrong in your city. There was a woman named Ida Seekman who had the misfortune in August of 1961 when the barbed wire and the temporary barriers went up. Her apartment building bordered West Germany, and it was determined that the sidewalk in front of her building was part of West Germany. The government solution to this when they were putting up the barbed wire was, well, let's just barricade the front of this. And that way, West Germany still have the sidewalk, which is technically in their territory. And I don't know if her apartment did not have a back door. The story that I read, it made it seem like Ida was trapped inside her apartment for nine days before she made her escape attempt. But since she couldn't get out the front door, uh, she threw her belongings and it said some bedding. I don't know if that means her mattress, maybe that she was hoping to land on the mattress, out of her window onto the street that was part of West Germany. And she jumped out the window of her apartment. I don't know what story her apartment was on. She did not survive the injuries that she sustained when she jumped out. So I'm going to say it certainly was not a first floor apartment and probably not a second floor. 
Uh, she did not die right away. She did survive the fall initially. Uh, she was picked up by an ambulance to be taken to the hospital. Uh, by the time the ambulance reached the hospital, she had passed away. Uh, that means that Ida Sickman was the first person to lose her life trying to get across the Berlin Wall. In 1971, a doctor escaped to the West by swimming across the Baltic Sea. Uh, he did not make it all the way across. He swam an estimated 28 miles before he was picked up by a boat that was owned by a West German citizen. I can't imagine that the water in the Baltic Sea is very warm, no matter what time of year you go for a swim in. Man, can you imagine swimming 28 miles? One of the more publicized escapes came in 1979. Eight people from two families escaped across the border using a homemade hot air balloon. They made a hot air balloon in their apartment and flew it over the Berlin Wall. Now, there's the doctor and that hot air balloon family. They actually made it. Um, a lot of people did not. There are no concrete numbers about how many people were killed. The East German government kept that stuff very tightly under wraps. They did not keep, well, they probably did keep Statistics on that stuff, but they did not release that to the public. Unofficial estimates say about a thousand people died trying to cross into West Germany. But the internet is full of really interesting stories about the ingenious ways people managed to get out of East Germany. Uh, I read one story a circus worker somehow managed to fashion a tightrope over the wall, or maybe he used an existing cable, uh, but he walked a tightrope to get over the wall. There was a group of about 15 people that escaped one time in a refrigerated truck. And the way that they were able to get through the, the border checks was that they buried themselves under animal carcasses in the back of the truck. And fortunately, the guards, they did inspect the cargo area of the truck, but they did not dig down into the animal carcasses to see if there was anything hiding under there. And I heard about one man. Uh, he was actually a West German citizen. He was dating a, an East German woman. And this man had permission to travel back and forth across the border. And what he did is he waited until his comings and goings became something that the border guards were expecting to see. And he actually had designed a passenger seat that his girlfriend could fit inside the seat so that when he drove back across the border... His girlfriend was hidden inside the car. It looked like he was by himself, and he was able to smuggle his girlfriend into West Germany. But there are a ton of those stories. It's an interesting read. If you got a few minutes, pull up Google and uh, kill a little time. It's some good reading. Another thing that was going on a lot of times were the citizens of East Germany were digging tunnels under the wall, and it actually got to the point that the Stasi installed seismic devices along the death strip of the Berlin Wall, and that way they were able to monitor and they were able to hear if anybody was digging. <clears throat> Again, we don't have any idea how many people escaped using tunnels, uh, but apparently it was a big enough issue that the Stasi went to that extreme to put a stop to it. Speaking of the Stasi, if you don't remember that term, that is the name for the secret police that the East Germans employed. Now, the Stasi's official job was counterintelligence and counterespionage. That was officially what they were supposed to be doing. Really what they spent 99% of their time doing was spying on their own citizens. The Stasi read 
George Orwell's 1984, and they didn't think it was a speculative fiction novel. They thought it was a how-to manual. The Stasi kept such detailed files on their citizens that when the Berlin Wall fell and Germany was reunited, a lot of the Stasi agents tried to destroy all the files when it was discovered that that's what they were doing. They were they put a stop to it. And again, it's hard to know exactly what was destroyed and how much was left. Estimates say that they destroyed about 5% of the files that they had on their citizens. 5% of those files is estimated to be about a billion sheets of paper. Another estimate is, is if you took all the files that the Stasi had and stacked them up, the stack of paper would be roughly 69 miles high. Stasi agents would wait until people were at work. They would let themselves into their apartment and move things around. They wouldn't tear anything up. They weren't searching for anything. They just wanted, when that person came home, to see that things weren't where they had been left so that they would know that the Stasi had been there and were keeping an eye on them. And it wasn't just official Stasi agents. The Stasi also had a network of paid informants, people that just seemed like your neighbors. They had a job. They went to work. You'd see them in your neighborhood. Uh, But basically, they were being paid to keep an eye on their neighbors and on their friends and reporting back to the Stasi. And once again, hard numbers are impossible to come by dealing with the East German government. It's estimated that the ratio of Stasi agents and informants to citizens was about 1 in 20. That number's hard to grasp. It, it, one out of every 20 person you knew, one of them was paid by the government to keep an eye on you. I cannot imagine what a fearful and repressive atmosphere that would be to live in. But that would probably explain why so many people were trying to escape. There's a theory in politics, I think it's called the open gates scenario. Basically what it means is if a country opens up its gates and allows people free access in or out, do people try to get in or do people try to leave? And if you're in a country where people stampede each other trying to get out, that's a that's a pretty bad sign. You going back to Cuba we mentioned earlier. There's kind of been a push here last 10, 20 years to sort of rehab Cuba's public image. The only thing I need to know about Cuba is the fact that the people who live in Cuba are so desperate to get off of that island that they will attempt to float across 90 miles of open ocean on a homemade raft that I wouldn't trust to get me across a farm pond. And when things are tolerable in your country, your citizens won't go to that extreme to to not be citizens of your country anymore. But as bad as the state-run oppression in East Germany was, I think the true argument against central planning autocracies would have to be the Trabant. The Trabant was the East German government's sort of official car for the people. It was designed in 1957, and it was built at a government-run automobile factory. It was in production until 1990, and it was basically the exact same car that rolled off the assembly line in 1957. They had added a slightly larger engine. The original came with a 500cc two-stroke engine. The models in 1989 were 
available with a 600cc two-stroke engine. Uh, now, using a two-stroke over a four-stroke, the pollution that comes out of a two-stroke engine is somewhere close to 30 times worse than what will come out of a four-stroke engine in a modern vehicle. So they were very bad for air pollution. For some reason or another, the East German government decided not to make these cars out of steel, the bodies out of steel. They used a substance called Duroplast. And what Duroplast was, was reclaimed cotton fibers out of old clothing, mixed with a resin and then pressed into shape. This was touted as a huge advancement in materials and manufacturing. And it did have a couple of things going for it. It was light. Um, it would not corrode, and it was easy to mold into the shape that you needed it to be. Some of the drawbacks were it does not rust. So when these very cheap, poorly cars inevitably broke down, it would just sit in people's yards forever. Another drawback was the resin, even after it cured, would put off toxic fumes for several years. And this was the only car that the average citizen in East Germany could purchase. Now, again, this was a government monopoly. You could not go across the street to a dealership that sold another brand. So you had to purchase this car from the government, and the waiting list was around a decade. In other words, somebody that needed a car in 1975 would put in a request to the government to purchase a Trabant. And sometime in the mid-80s, they may be able to take delivery of this soul-crushingly ugly little car. And like I say, this car was sold pretty much unchanged until 1990. And I want you to think about just the awesome luxury and supercars that were coming out of West Germany through the 80s and early 90s. Uh, Porsche, Mercedes, Audi, even VW for that matter. And just across the border, there was one horrible little car that you could purchase. The 1989 model of the Trabant put out a blistering 25 horsepower. It did not come with turn signal indicators, headlight indicators. It did not have a speedometer, a tachometer, a fuel gauge. It didn't even have a fuel door because the way you filled up its two-stroke engine is you had to open the hood and pour the gasoline into the fuel tank through the engine compartment. Again, this was 1989. So when my daughter asked me how we felt about communism when I was her age, I can just point to this wonderful example that we had that was on the news every single night showing us why free market capitalism is better than communism. And I would like to propose that we bring East Germany back. Now, I'm not saying divide Berlin again. That wouldn't be fair to the citizens of Berlin. But I think Germany should set aside some land and let's build a city and put a wall around it. And when I say put a wall, I mean an escape from New York type wall. And the people in this country or anywhere else, now the people that you see with the Communist Party flags and stuff at rallies, those people have to go and live there. They don't get a choice. But everybody else, you can volunteer to move to this communist city in Germany, but you have to stay there. Now, the conceit for a lot of people, the modern communist is, is that we're going to do it right this time. You know, the, the people before, they, they, didn't, they didn't do it right. We'll do it right. It's not going to turn into the shit show that it always does. That's kind of the conceit of these people, that 
the narcissistic belief that they have thought deeper about this subject than anybody in history. See, the problem with that is, is that the people that were running those communist countries that we point to as examples of why it's not a good idea, they thought the exact same thing you did. They thought that they were smarter than everybody else and they had it figured out. And if you go all the way back to Karl Marx, you know, we, we know that Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto and it's sort of his economic philosophy. Something that I never hear mentioned when they talk about Karl Marx is that Karl Marx also believed that he and the intellectual elites like himself needed to be in charge. And that kind of puts the whole Marxism into a little bit of a different perspective when you realize that this wasn't just something Karl Marx felt was right that he wanted to be in charge. He thought he was better than the average person, and he needed to be able to tell those idiots how they needed to live. Basically, Karl Marx was a wannabe dictator who didn't have a throne. But that's my plan, and I think it's a win for everybody. These young people that think communism is a good idea, they'll get to live in their idealized society. Germany can build up a little bit of good karma. And the rest of us, we will have an example to, once again, we can look to every evening and say, that's why communism's a bad idea. Because no matter what this new breed of comrades believe, the reason communism fails is because communism runs smack into human nature. And you cannot give all the power and all the money to a very select few individuals and have it not immediately turn into corruption. I don't care how far you think we have evolved, that is how things are. And it's probably not going to change anytime soon. All right, guys, that's all I've got for you today. I appreciate you sitting with me once again. I hope you're enjoying the show. Uh, if you'd like to leave me a comment, shoot me an email at freshfrozensoutherner at gmail.com. And I will talk to you soon. Have a good night. <music>